Well, while everyone's all getting their seats and everything, I, I, let me begin here before we read 1 Thessalonians and, and work, work through this. Let me just briefly recap a little bit of last week. After both services, we held a church meeting in which we came together, we discussed the opportunity to buy this barn, and, and, uh, and after working through all of it, uh, we voted to move forward with it. It's an exciting new step for us as a church, and we challenged our church family to take the, uh, take, take the information we provided and the commitment card and to prayerfully ask the Lord what you as an individual or as a couple or as a family need to commit to that. And so I wanna encourage you a few things. First of all, if you took a card and you're still praying about that, continue to pray on that. Uh, if you've been praying and you feel as though you know exactly where the Lord's leading you on that when it comes to a commitment in order to purchase this, then you can put those little cards in the offering box over there and then thirdly, if you're hearing that, you're thinking, I don't even know what you're talking about, or I would like more information on that, or I would like to circle back on some of the stuff, then after this, yeah, after the service, probably about 15 minutes later, maybe about 1030, uh, I'd love to have a meeting in here to talk through, again, not only for those who missed last week, and you'd like a lot of the breakdown, which we can summarize in about 10 minutes, uh, or if you'd like to ask them questions or, or work through any of it, we'll be here to, to talk through that. And then our hope is every week here throughout February, we can give updates regarding some of the progress we're making on that commitment side, and then also just answer any questions you may have. In fact, one of the, one of the questions slash, slash feedback I got that I do wanna address uh, was just in regards to the meeting last week, kind of the, the process, not the outcome or the, the opportunity to buy this, but just how we had the meeting. And uh, I, I think there was good feedback uh, that it felt more rushed than it needed to be. And it didn't give some of us an opportunity to uh, be more thoughtful or considerate, which is a common value of ours as a church, you know, being prayerful and giving you that space as opposed to feeling a little more rushed. And so for that, I do not only wanna address that and apologize if that was where you are, but also I do think it's a great reminder that if, something were to happen with this process where we need to come back together as a church family or something down the road as a church family to give space for there to be thoughtful consideration, plenty of time to pray on it as a congregation. We do wanna provide that for you. So there was a little bit of that awareness last week brought to our attention. Now, uh, as you, when you go out there, in case I forget to say this after the service, we have a, a brand new handout no one has seen this yet, unless you grabbed it on the way in. And so this summarizes not only the overview of what we're doing, the five different reasons that we wanna purchase and move forward, but then also the financial description on the back. And so I wanna encourage you to grab that. It's on the round table right out here uh, when you walk through the door. And along with it, there's a, there's a uh, property map here that describes you know, what we're looking at, as well as the dimensions of this facility with the different rooms and stuff. And there's also a picture of some of the hallway rooms that we don't access on Sunday. So if you would like to see that, grab it, grab yourself a copy of the different material. You can look at that. And again, if you have questions afterward, we'll be in here after the uh, probably 15, 20 minutes. So with that said, let us, let us look at scripture. This is a great book. I don't know how many of you read ahead and have been working through this on your own, but I will re-remind you to do so to the degree you can incorporate 
1 Thessalonians in your own private time in the word, even if it's a few verses every day, to read over it, to be thoughtful on it, and to find yourself understanding it in a better way. It starts off, uh, 1 Thessalonians, what we looked at last week, with this reminiscing of Paul just celebrating their response to the gospel. And it reminded me a lot of our church family, how when the gospel was preached and lived among us, there was this response with great excitement. We watched, we watched God's word and the movement of the Holy Spirit on our lives that just swept with power. And it's really exciting to be a part of. Well, now Paul continues in this letter. And he starts off, when he gets to chapter two, and what we have, he begins to walk through his, I'll call it his philosophy of ministry. And so to set the stage for this, instead of 1 Thessalonians 2, I want to skip ahead to another book just briefly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there's a few verses in there that describe something that's very unique to all of us who are born again. If you're a Christ follower, you know, Jesus is your Savior. These words are true of you. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right, hallelujah for that one. And then also it continues. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And then lastly here, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's like, that's like super dense theology. That's like if you ask for breakfast and you're like, I like a donut. And I'm like, here is oatmeal that hasn't you know, even been cooked yet, just eat it. It's a little bit like that. In the middle there, what I wanna focus on is this phrase, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul refers to this and to us just kind of uh, as Christ followers, as those who are ministers of reconciliation. So when you think of a minister, you might think of what I do, but I am here to say, we as followers of Christ are all ministers. And, and, and this looks not just in kind of the setting that I'm in, but for all of us, in all the different areas that God has us, all the people we influence, we are ministers of reconciliation to them. So that is within this church family, uh, that is within your home, that could be in the workplace or at school. You're a minister of reconciliation. Another word used that we read was the word ambassador for Christ, right, that phrase. And no matter how you wanna uh, look at it or word it, my challenge for us is to recognize that by the Holy Spirit who empowers us, and by the sovereign will of the Father, we have been authorized by Jesus Christ to be his minister of reconciliation. We have the message of reconciliation to share with others, and we're gonna watch him, as we've already seen in our lives, we're gonna watch him move in great ways. Now I bring this up because when Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter two, he begins to walk through how he displayed this ministry of reconciliation. He doesn't use those words. I'm using those words for him, although he also wrote 
Second uh, Corinthians. But think about the ministry of reconciliation, and then we're going to circle back on that at the end here. So let's start off here in 1 Thessalonians 2. That's, uh, that's going to get us going. So for, verse 1 says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to reread that in the, in the New Living Translation just because I like the, the phrasing here. It says, You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. Okay, so how did Paul know that his visit and his work among the Thessalonians was not a failure? By what measurement did he use to determine that this was a success? Was it this citywide revival that occurred? No. Uh, was it how everybody in the city loved him? No. They, a lot of people in the city didn't like him. That's why he had to flee the city. By what measurement did Paul use to determine this? Well, a clue that we have in answering is actually the first few letters in the word failure, but it's a totally different word. It's the word faithfulness. Paul's faithfulness is the measurement to determine if he is a successful minister of reconciliation. And in the same way that he can use faithfulness, so can we. We can ask, is my work unto the Lord a success or is it a failure? And the measurement, the corresponding question to gauge this is, well, were you faithful? Were you faithful with what was entrusted to you? And again, this is not a question just asked of me. This is asked of everyone who's born again. Were you entrusted? Or were you faithful with the children God entrusted to you? Were you faithful with the employment God entrusted to you? Were you faithful with the class that the Lord entrusted to you? Were you faithful in all these different areas, particularly when it comes to being a faithful influencer of the gospel to the, you know, the sphere of influence the Lord gives you? When it comes to our gospel responsibility to lead others in the teachings of Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus Christ, we can't control how they respond. I can't control how my kids respond or my coworkers or my friends but we can govern our own behavior when it comes to obedience to God's leading and walking in the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that his work was not in vain because he was faithful to God's call, despite the physical hardship and despite the spiritual attacks. And his faithfulness to the gospel, it led to the fruit in the lives of these Thessalonians. So these next few verses, they describe what I'm calling four indicators of faithfulness. So how did he know he was faithful? Did he just feel faithful? No, no, there's actual ways we can determine this. So verse two starts off and it describes this first indicator of faithfulness. So it says this, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to, de to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So the first indicator of Paul's uh, faithfulness is persistence. Paul lived a life of persistence. I call this gospel grit. He just keeps going and going. He stays the course. He is focused. He's tenacious in his conviction to fulfill the ministry that God had given him, to live out the life and the command that Jesus Christ gave him. Despite the persecution he endured, Paul did not give up. The stakes were too high. Jesus' commission was too significant to him to get distracted. This was a true holy calling. 
Paul was undeterred by earthly consequences like the slanders against his reputation, the broken bones that his body had to heal from, and the inconvenient lifestyle that he lived. Well, how about us? What would it take to make you give up in your faith, specifically? Name calling? I've been called names. I don't like it. How about you? Losing your job because you're a Christian? Maybe suffering a Job-like experience where the enemy takes everything from you? What's it take to make you throw in the towel in the things that God has entrusted to you? For instance, your marriage, or the responsibilities as a parent, or to make you quit your job that perhaps God has placed you there specifically because he has gospel work for you to do. What's it take to make you stop going to group or leading a group during the week or stop prioritizing Sunday morning worship, whatever it may be, that which God has entrusted to you. We need a daily dose of the Holy Spirit's persistence in order to be faithful. We need a revival of gospel grit, one that keeps our eyes focused on Christ and fills our heart with the tenacity to fulfill the work that God has entrusted to us. And then like Paul, we can have this deep conviction that says, no matter what the enemy may throw at me, I will not lay down. I wasn't, I, I, I normally don't do this. I'm, I'm gonna pray real quick. I, I, I have the suspicion that most of us don't even realize the ministry that, that God has for us. We just, that word is so commonly and clichely used regarding what I do that it's difficult for you to recognize what God actually has. So I'm gonna pray for a moment. I'm gonna ask that God would make clear to you what I'm actually talking about for each of you because this is, this is specific to you and what God has led you to do. Let's do that. God, as we're working through this, it does no good to just work through a verse that feels unclear. So, would you in your mercy and your grace allow for my brothers and my sisters in Christ to understand what it is that you have entrusted to them? What, what, what that opportunity for the ministry of reconciliation actually is? With all the different interactions they have during the week and all the different commitments that, that you've given th to them and all the lost people we are surrounded by, Some of these people, they come to mind very easily and others we just kind of have forgotten. Lord, I pray you would draw to mind what these opportunities are and that with like even this very first one, that you would fill us with a deep persistence and gospel grit to stay the course with their lives regardless of how difficult it may be at times. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so the second indicator of faithfulness from Paul is in these next few words. Let me, let me read these verses and then I'll tell you what it is. See if you can guess. He says this, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So in this 
section, Paul describes another indicator of faithfulness, as I'd call it, and it's this pure speech. He mentioned that his words were free from error. They accurately told of who Jesus Christ is and what he had done. The world is full of erroneous stories about Jesus. It was about at the time, and it still is today. But Paul's words were true. So he says they were free from error. He also says they were free from impurity. Paul's words were truthful in regards to doctrine. Various groups, they claimed things about Jesus. Some religious leaders, they argued that Jesus didn't exist or that Jesus didn't resurrect or that he, he didn't do the miracles he did or that he couldn't forgive sin. Some folks in Greek culture, they claimed that there were multiple ways to have peace with God. Uh, does this sound familiar? Yeah, people haven't changed from today to 2,000 years ago. Same arguments, same questions, nothing's new under the sun with that. And in this case, Paul held strong and he taught pure doctrine. He also, he, he also mentions that his words were free from uh, deception. You know, they were genuine. He didn't get them to believe by manipulating them or strong-arming them or shaming them or controlling them. He testified about the simple gospel and let God do the rest of the work. Also, Paul's words were worship. He mentions how his aim was pleasing God, not man, even if others did not approve. Let's remember that God is the only one who holds the right to judge. Others might disapprove with the new teachings, uh, in this case of, of the early church, they called it the way, right? The, the church was known as the way in a lot of these areas. Then they may not have approved, or maybe they felt uncomfortable that the law was now fulfilled by the atoning work of the Messiah, and they were now free in Christ. They now have this new covenant. And then everybody loved that information, even though it was freeing. But it wasn't Paul's concern how they felt about that. Also, Paul's words did not match the flattery of the day, right? The eloquence of the Macedonian TED Talks. It just wasn't his style. He wasn't discouraged, though, by what was considered like verbal plainness. Paul just let the power of the gospel speak for itself. He didn't water it down, didn't have to excuse it, didn't say like, hey, I know that this is gonna like be super uncomfortable, and so let me paint this whole flowery picture that doesn't actually make you feel too uncomfortable, and then at the end tell you like what's going on here. Instead, he just talked through it. He didn't need the theatrics or the bombastic oratory skills. And like Paul, we can rely upon the scriptures to do the heavy lifting. And this is true in your, in your life or in your conversations with your, your spouse or your kids, other family members, I know neighbors, and, and everyone else in your life. Let scripture do the heavy lifting. Let the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, right? It's good news. Let it do the work for you. You just gotta kind of do it. You can even just read verses. And if Jesus has changed your life, you can even testify to what he's done in your own life. You know, you can tell me the story of the, the buck that you shot this year. Well, if you can tell me about that. You can tell me about what Jesus has done in your life or the frustrations you're having in your faith or the victories you're having in your faith. We can talk about these things. Paul mentions, well, he just keeps going through this here. At the very end here in verse Five, he says, and then we never came with those words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is my witness. The last thing is that Paul's words were free from greed or some sort of way to convince others 
uh, to, to help them out in that financial, in that financial stuff. Now, verse 6, it tells us the third indicator of Paul's faithfulness. It says this, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of, his, uh, of her own children. So this third indicator is Paul's servant-mindedness. He was not there in Thessalonica. He wasn't there to take from them, but to give to them. He wasn't there to demand his title, but to wash their feet. He wasn't there to get their applause, but to sacrificially love them despite personal attack town after town. He didn't have to do this. Like it wasn't benefiting him to keep preaching the gospel in this area. In fact, it was physically harming him and decreasing the length of his life. It was not comfortable in so many ways, but he continued on and on. Paul's sacrifice was so selfless that he likens his concern for them like a mother caring for her nursing baby, right? One of life's greatest displays of self-denial and generosity and kindness is a mom nursing her own child. And Paul did not pull the authority card with them, but he served them and he loved them and he showed them a similar gentleness. Now, as I think about being a minister of reconciliation and the various people who are influenced by us, again, our kids or friends or family members, other folks, maybe within our church family, this could be if you lead one of our pioneer kids or our student life groups or our mid midweek groups with adults, whoever it is, everyone that God has placed in our lives with the purpose so that they would know Jesus Christ and grow in their faith, we can ask these questions. Are we servant-minded among this person or among that group of people? Are we sacrificial or are we demanding? Do we look to our own interests or to their interests as well? Are we more concerned with what we're gonna get out of this or what they need? And that last question comes to mind a lot, especially as I think again about that metaphor of a, of a nursing mother, not at all asking, what can I get out of this? You get nothing out of this. <laughs> Your child is what gets it. I feel comfortable doing this as well. I wanna, I wanna pause in, this, in, this, in what we're talking about to just address a verse that I read a few weeks ago. And I didn't know if I would use this, but I feel... Uh, good before the Lord to bring this up. So you gotta shift gears. Like those who can compartmentalize, right, just shut it down. We'll come back to this in a second. If you're not good at this, you're really gonna be thrown off. I read this verse in Isaiah a couple weeks ago that references a nursing mother as well. And I, it's one of those, like, Isaiah is such a huge book, all this prophetic language. It's like, I just get lost. I don't remember where a lot of the verses are that I've read in Isaiah because there's just so much material. I read this and I thought, wow, I don't know if I'm ever gonna like uh, reference this, but I'll keep that in my back pocket. Well, a couple weeks, just two weeks later, you now we're in this and I thought, oh, okay, this is, this is fantastic. So let me read this for you. We don't have these words on the screen, but in Isaiah 49, 14 to 15, so Isaiah 49, 14 to 15, the wording says this, yet Jerusalem says, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. But I say, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? 
But even if that were possible, like for the mother, I would still never forget you. Now, friends, that has nothing to do with First Thessalonians, but other than a parallel in the language. I, it, I bring this up because it doesn't surprise me that there may be those of us in the room who feel that the Lord is overlooking them or has forgotten them. This wording is to Jerusalem as a people because they had fled. They were rebellious and wondering where is God. Well, for you, you know, whether you are literally rebellious before the Lord or you're just in the struggle and you've been wondering if he's forgotten you, these words, I believe, are for you. Like full disclosure, I'm not at this spot where Isaiah 49 is like, hitting me in the heart. I, I was maybe a couple weeks back. It was really helpful that, when that, that day when I was reading it. For some of you, you may need that right now. Not necessarily First Thessalonians. So there you go, kind of a, a sermon and a sermonette, right? Right there. Well, I will say, before we go back to First Thessalonians, those words out of Isaiah 49, I think that's such a fascinating description that God uses to remind us that like he, he has not forgotten us the way uh, a mother wouldn't forget her nursing child. What I think is kind of a fascinating, of all the different pictures not only is that one super intimate there of a mother and a child, but uh, in my experience, not as the mother, but as the, as the father and the husband to a, a wife who's endured this a few times, uh, it's like during that season with a newborn is when there's just a lot of loneliness and wondering, has the Lord forgotten me? You know, like hearing those kinds of questions, it's, it's like, that's ironic because that's the exact metaphor he uses to describe how much he does love you. And uh, it's like a, a fascinating, uh, it's just mind game that we can play. So, okay, so that's, I think some of us need that. Now let us just shift back to Greco-Roman culture, which is totally different. One was very artistic. Whew, okay, now let's get back into Greek thinking. This is totally different style. I don't know if I'm gonna do that second service. I'm gonna have to pray between services on this one. That's a rough shift. Okay, so back to the last indicator. So we already went through the other one that was just servant-mindedness, before that pure speech, and then persistence. Okay, so we have a fourth indicator of faithfulness. What does it look like to be faithful with where God has you, with what he's entrusted you to? Because wherever you are, you are a minister of the gospel. What is it? I will tell you in a second. Verse eight says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives or our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is a fascinating indicator and it's that Paul shared his life with them. Uh, The other ones are like succinct, one word or so. This one, I didn't really know how to make that simple. Uh, if you think of one, let me know. But Paul, he was not interested in just preaching at them or filling their minds with good doctrine, getting them on the right course, and then moving on to the next town. Instead, he lived among them. He gave his life to them. This is his time. This is his testimony. This is the highs, but also the lows in life. This is the victories and the failures or the frustrations. He transitioned from being this outside missionary who rolled in and nobody like knew what he was talking about to becoming their friend, living among them. I can relate to that kind of difference. Y'all welcomed me as I bounded across the mountains, right, to this town and shifting from like outside missionary dude to a friend, brother in Christ. That's a very, very special change that's there. 
this concept reminds me of Jesus even in his ministry. As you read the gospel accounts, which are, I know our students are going through that, and Mark and John, some of your groups may be going through one of the gospel accounts too, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We see Jesus, he didn't just tell people correct doctrine, but he lived among them. That's why the whole emphasis of him walking with his disciples is so fascinating. And one reason I love watching the TV show The Chosen, because it gives like, it, it gives me a picture of how what I'm reading, what that kind of uh, interaction looked like, rather than just being words on a page. And said, it's like, wow, look at, they, they lived among one another. You know, Jesus was with them. This concept of living among those that you're doing ministry with is a vital one. Those whom God has entrusted to you to minister to, they need to be brought into your life, right? So the intangible and the tangible. So from being brought into your home or more the you know, intangible things like life's greatest joys or the worst sorrows and not just keeping that private to yourself where there's frustration and there's forgiveness coexisting, uh, where there's physical and emotional and spiritual dynamics at work in your own life and in the life of the other people. So often, uh, we, we want like this space here on a Sunday just to be this, I'll call it a socially sanitized space. There's smiles. Uh, today there's brownies and, uh, and there's coffee and like everything's good. Okay, that's fun. Well, the reality is I'm driving around this town every day and I pray for you because I like to find out where people live and stuff and I pray for you as I'm driving through all the streets and everything. And this particular week, not long ago in one of our neighborhoods, there's, uh, there's several folks living in that same spot. And I was just thinking like struggle for the ones I knew, like struggle. heartbreak, like fear is like going on in these homes of people in our own church family. And it just made me think of the entire community of all these other homes I don't even know these people. It's like that, what I see is just what's represented in these small few homes. And then we have this whole town there, but to be, we, we tend to just like want things to be so like nice and fancy or that if, if you have a group at your house, right, you clean everything up, everything's great. It's like the reality is if when life is going well, it's so good to celebrate with one another. James teaches us that. But when life is, is a challenge, share that. Because if you don't, you will find yourself struggling. Whether that's in a position of like sharing that to your group leader or to me, but then even if it's the other way around, like the power dynamics, and you're like you're in that leadership role or you're in the spot of influence to your children or whatever it may be, to bring them in on your desperation or reliance upon the Father, that is so important to, to, to have that. When I read what Paul's writing here, I, I see that. I, he's not just rolling in saying, hey, everything is hunky-dory. Instead, there are challenges, and he, he does that. So, so Paul, he faithfully fulfilled his ministry to the Thessalonians. He references, references it here. There's a little more in the rest of chapter two, but I'm gonna save that for for uh, next week. And as we look at this, we recognize that Paul, when he preached the gospel in Thessalonica, we were told from last week, if you recall, a bunch of people responded. 
but not everybody did. And the persecution picked up so much, he had to flee town. And so when we look at this, we recognize, well, he says that it was not in vain. You know, how is he measuring that? How does he know it wasn't a failure? Well, he wasn't using the measurement that everybody liked him. He wasn't using the standard that uh, everybody uh, treated him nicely. He was using that. Well, he didn't give up. He had persistence, right? That he had sound and genuine words about Jesus, right? His speech, it was pure. Thirdly, that he was thinking of others' needs before his own. So he had that servant-mindedness. And lastly, he was truly opening up and living what I'll call the sanctified struggle with other people, with his church family, with those, right? He was sharing his life among them. And so my challenge to you is, do, do one of these indicators resonate with you in a way in which you need the Holy Spirit to equip you specifically? Maybe you hear all four and you're like, oh, I'll, I'll just take them all. But if, if there's one that you're thinking, yeah, I, I'm gonna rework through this here. So if there's like the first one with persistence, this gospel grit, this this inclination to want to give up with wherever you are. But God is saying, no, I want you to stay strong and to press in. If that's what you're struggling to have that persistence, to, 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 right now as we're about to worship and sing, use this as a time and then tomorrow as well. You, you'll just pray something along the lines of, Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your grace to be persistent or to stay strong where, I, where, where my where my heart and my body wants to run, you know, so that, that could be one. If it's some pure speech about who Jesus is, what is truth, I think for some of us, we, we have so much theological baggage that we're bringing to those conversations. We need to ask the Lord to just flush out all that garbage, legalistic 